This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome two guests, Craig Guile and Joe Balitsky. Now, Craig is a former fighter pilot who ultimately transitioned into the business world. Joe is the chief veterinary officer for NASA and one of the leading researchers in DARPA, an organization founded alongside NASA to truly challenge innovation. So we discuss a host of topics from their respective journeys into their careers, Craig's powerful 9-11 story, Joe's pioneering work with exogenous ketones, the incredible body cooling innovation that began in DARPA and now has become CoolMit, the various animal species that have seen space, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Craig Guile and Joe Bailitsky. Enjoy. Well, Craig and Joe, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for inviting me to this beautiful agency where we are recording today because normally it's either in my house or, you know, in a gym somewhere. So for people listening, where are we sitting exactly geographically? We are sitting in, uh, I guess it's Altamont Springs, Florida. So um, just uh, outside downtown Orlando, Florida, the uh, our agency that uh, we are a uh, new relationship for us because we're just now getting a supply. Um supply uh, perspective or a supply um, posture, we can actually start getting the word out. And so this is a uh, really excited to talk to you about this with our technology and how we can uh, help out the uh, the firefighting and any first responders um, with our technology. Are you based in the Orlando area normally? Yeah. So I live here in Orlando. I've been here for about uh, 15 years. Um, my lovely bride and I moved down here from Connecticut, um, raised our boys, got rid of them, uh, quickly, got them out of the house about, turns out they can't get far enough away from me going from Austin to LA to Taiwan, but, uh, they're, uh, they're, uh, wonderful boys, but yeah, Orlando has been good for us. Um, and, uh, uh, has the virtue of some pretty reasonable weather compared to the North. Absolutely. And Joe, where do you call home normally? I live in Cocoa Beach, oh, uh, so you're local. about 60 miles east of here. And um, been here for about going on 20 years. Okay. I don't know why I'm surprised because you work for NASA. So why would you not work in or live in the area? So That was coincidental. That was it really? Um, yeah. I was living here and they asked me to, uh, you know, kind of talk, talk me into coming back and doing some things with them to, or at an organizational level. So, Brilliant. Well, I want to kind of walk you through your timeline. You both got fascinating journeys. And obviously what we're going to be discussing today is a, you know, an interesting cross-pollination of both of your backgrounds. So let's start with you, Craig. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Interesting. So um, first of all, I'm way less fascinating than Joe's background. So we're <laughs> going to start up and then to a crescendo to Joe. <laughs> 
But uh, and then so the I was me, which is going to be so, mega disappointing. <laughs> so uh, my father actually uh, was in the U.S. Navy, um, uh, but he got out when I was two. But so we were born. I was born in Kittery, Maine. Uh, he was based in New Hampshire, um, and so he got out. Like I said, when uh, when I was two. So I, uh, you know, we did move around a little bit. So lived in Virginia and Pennsylvania, um, and then Atlanta, Georgia is where I went to uh, elementary school. He got a job in New York City. We live in Connecticut. Um, and uh, I went to middle school there, elementary middle school, and then moved down to Jacksonville, Florida, where I went to high school. Now, when you were going through this- Oh, school- sorry. I asked about my family. So two uh, <laughs> lovely parents who are still with us, thank the Lord, uh, and an older sister, uh, Kim. So uh, you had the virtue of a, a very uh, wonderful childhood and, and solid family life. Now, you said your dad was in the military prior. Was that something that you were dreaming of becoming when you were in high school? Or is there a different reason you found yourself in the Navy? Yeah, uh, so when I was in high school, I dreamed of playing uh, basketball. Um, and the college coaches apparently had a different dream for me. Uh, so uh, uh, University of North Carolina did not come knocking on my door. So uh, I was, turns out, a re- reasonably good student. So I got a scholarship uh, from the Navy to go to college. So uh Took that scholarship to, to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, lovely Nashville. Um, for what it's worth was not nearly as nice back then as it is now. Now it's freaking crazy fun. But, um, so, uh, uh, the Navy paid for me to go there. I, uh, you know, graduated, went to flight school, ended up flying, uh, planes to the Navy, uh, A6 intruder. So a jet off an aircraft carrier. And that's, uh, what I did with my, my Navy career. So you just brushed off your early life that you were a pilot, a fighter pilot. Uh, kind of a fighter pilot, yes. Yeah. So we were actually, we dropped bombs. Um, so really cool, uh, job to have great buddies from, uh, my squadron that I still am, am, uh, really close with. So, uh, again, yeah, we're based in Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, off the USS America. Um, A6 intruder off the USS America, to be fair. Um, they were both old, uh, when I was operating them, uh, they're both deceased. So the, the, the aircraft carriers, uh, retired and actually, uh, is, uh, been put away and the, uh, the plane has been, uh, been retired as well. So you can find some, it's actually a, um, a fishing reef off the coast of, uh, St. Augustine, uh, which is kind of a ignominious end for the plane, but they made it, they dumped a bunch of them off of St. Augustine to, to build the fishing reef, which I guess is a good fishing reef. And there's a bunch out in the, uh, the desert of Arizona. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Now, while you were flying, was there any sort of uh, conflict going on at that time in your military career? Yeah. So um, my uh, three sons, as far as I know, I single-handedly won the first Iraq war. But uh, (laughs) so we were actually engaged in uh, that uh, war in, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Um, And a little bit of trivia, my aircraft carrier was the only one of the six that were engaged in that fight um, to be in both the the, uh, uh, Persian Gulf as well as the uh, Arabian Sea. So we were on both sides of it. So what was that like through your eyes? Because when we think of the first conflict, I mean, basically it seemed like it was a lot of kind of Air Force, you know, Navy aircraft that were really doing a lot of the work. And that first one, obviously, second time around, it was boots on the ground. But yeah, we have some interesting stories. But so um, you know, we did a quick ramp up to, to get ready for that war. Um, and uh, so it was, you know, looking back, it was, you know, very successful. We were able to get, you know, bomb them very effectively to where when they did have a thankfully very short ground war, it was uh, pretty, pretty quick. Um, 
you know, a lot of interesting stories out of that. But in the end, like, you know, there's a fairly famous uh, road out of Basra uh, going from Kuwait into uh, Iraq. And the last few days, we just like were bombing these retreating Iraqis uh, that had like, you know, this basic desert on one road. So it was a little bit like uh, shooting fish in a barrel. But, you know, those fish hadn't surrendered yet. So we had a, a job to do. Yeah, I mean, it's a horrendous, you know, thing to have to do, but it did was kind of shock and awe. It did stop it pretty much in its tracks and probably saved a lot of lives with those tactics post. Yeah, you know, I give the powers that be uh, from back then a lot of credit because they did form a, a pretty global coalition to, you know, extract a guy who had, uh, who had invaded his neighbor. Um, and, uh, you know, people can argue if we should have gone farther. I personally that day when they said we're stopping, I was like, oh, that's good. I'm happy to stop. But, uh, uh, you know, we did not uh, march on to Baghdad after that. And the transition out, what made you decide to, to leave the Navy and move into the civilian world? Um, good question. So um, I had a wonderful time in the Navy. Uh, I probably never envisioned myself being a, a career guy, but I did have a, a great experience. Like I said, you know, cool job, cool buddies. Um, uh, but that being said, going to sea for six months at a clip is kind of for the birds. So I was engaged to my, uh, my now lovely wife. Um, she was lovely back then as well. But, um, so I was engaged. I knew I didn't want to like raise a, a kid, raise a family and be a sea at six months all the time for that kind of career. So, um, I, uh, got a good transition job after my, my flying tour, uh, ended up going to business school as a kind of a career transition. So I went to, got my MBA at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, which was, uh, for me, it was a great experience. You know, one, uh, built some great relationships out of that, but also I had been an engineer, uh, in undergrad. A, I always say I'm not, I got an engineering degree. I'm not an engineer. I'm horrible at actually fixing things, but, um, uh, good degree to have. Never did anything with it. But when I went to, to Wharton, I majored in finance and that was actually, you know, uh, uh, great learning experience for me academically as well as the, you know, the folks that I met. So took that, uh, uh, that degree and like every good Wharton, uh, graduate went to Wall Street. Um, that's kind of an exaggeration, but not that much of a exaggeration. So, um, the, uh, I decided to go into the, the trading arena, um, uh, for Wall Street. So to me, it kind of fit my personality, kind of fit the environments that I've been in, you know, the athletic locker room environment, um, for all the, the good and bad of that environment, the squadron environment, the high, high intensity, fast paced environment, the trading floor, you know, kind of was a good, uh, good transition for me to do that, replicated that environment pretty well. So I was a trader, not a trader to the country, but a trader of uh, bonds and commodities for a bit on Wall Street. And uh, they did, the, you know, definitely uh, worked in that rat race for, I guess it was 12 years uh, in on Wall Street. A lot of people, when they transition out the military, um, well, they say a lot. Some people struggle with that transition. I mean, you've got such a sense of purpose, especially, you know, if you were actually fighting for this country in particular conflict, you identify as something pretty damn cool, you know, the fighter pilot, and then you transition out into something else. Was your transition, was there an element of struggle in that? Or did you actually transition flawlessly because you had that next purpose? I wouldn't say flawlessly. Um, but I think, you know, particularly the environment that I went into, like a, uh, uh, high paced competitive trading floor, a little bit more like my military environment. Um, you know, since then, um, going into, you know, beyond the Wall Street business world, uh, I do kind of miss the culture and the ethos of the military where, uh, someone says they're going to do something and it happens. And if it doesn't happen, they let you know beforehand that, you know, here's what is not going to happen and here's why. So, um, you know, unfortunately, 
from my perspective, uh, you know, that culture is not everywhere. But, uh, you know, I would say my, my purpose, uh, you know, certainly had a, uh, a foundation of wanting to, you know, serve the country. And, um, there's obviously a, some level of, uh, potential self-sacrifice in that. But, uh, you know, my purpose went from, from that professionally to, you know, doing the best I could in my job, basically to, you know, to, uh, serve my family, you know. Beautiful. Well, Joe, we'll, we'll start from the beginning for you as well. So <laughs> tell me where you were born. Tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in Chicago. Um, my parents were first generation Americans. My grandparents immigrated from Poland and Ukraine. And uh, my father was a janitor and my mother raised ki- four kids. I have three sisters and um, my oldest sister Managed to be the first person in the family to go to college and kind of inculcated me a value for education and learning. And so I, I blame my education on her. Uh, it's worked out well. Um, so I went to school in Chicago. We kind of lived in an area of Chicago known as the Polish ghetto on the near northwest side, which had the highest Polish population of any place in America. Uh, and so it was a little bit different, transitional neighborhood. Um uh, went to the University of Illinois Chicago Circle for my undergraduate degree. Got my degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. Um, having grown up in Chicago for some ridiculous reason, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And um, I didn't get into veterinary school the first time I applied. So I have a master's degree in dairy science, um, which is really kind of strange because up to that point, I had never touched a cow. And so um, my very first experience in graduate school was they handed me a pair of boots and coveralls and said, we're going out to collect semen from a bull, um, which is a really abrupt introduction to what livestock <laughs> really looks like. This wasn't in the syllabus. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> well, I joined. <laughs> um, but I master's degree in reproductive physiology. And uh, then I was accepted to veterinary school at the University of Illinois in Urbana. And uh, graduated about the time Craig was born in 1976. <laughs> so um, my first job out of veterinary school, I went to work for the Topeka Zoo. I was the first full-time veteran- zoo veterinarian there. And actually, I think I was the 18th full-time zoo veterinarian in the United States at that point. It, it has grown significantly since then as far as the number of veterinarians and zoos now. Um, and then I spent about 20 years in the, in the National Institute of Health Primate Center program. Uh, I wanted to have a specialty. So my specialty is actually non-human primates and both at the University of Washington and at Emory University. So I spent a little bit of time in the middle of that um, in private practice. I, I think every veterinarian needs to know what they, they, they like best. Um, private practice was all right. I Not bad at it. Um, but I really found the research environment was far more challenging and interesting for me. Work with a lot of smart people on a day-to-day basis in every aspect of science, from behavior to physics. And so, you know, you learn something every day in that environment. And I found, you know, in practice, you know, you kind of get stuck. At least I found myself feeling like I was stuck doing the same thing every day. New people, new animals, but not a lot of variety. And so, you know, my brain works better in a research environment. Um, And then I got a call um, from a colleague of mine who is uh, in the astronaut corps at NASA and said they were looking to hire a full-time veterinarian at NASA. And so I applied for that job, and amazingly, they hired me. Um, I spent five years you know, at the Ames Research Center out in Mountain View, California t- doing that. 
And um, then I got this invitation to go to work with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, which was a, a, basically a four-year assignment. I was on loan from NASA to the Department of Defense. And uh, DARPA is a federal agency that is intended to do high-risk, high-benefit research at the, at the absolutely revolutionary level. So you can do crazy things. Um, for people don't know DARPA, they did do the set up the standards for the internet, you know, before really computers were on everybody's laptop. And, uh, you know, they've done a lot of really amazing things, uh, little things like stealth technology, um, you know, the, the B2, <laughs> B1 bomber, um, other things that, you know, probably the things that people have seen more of uh, prosthetic limbs, um, was came out of DARPA, you know, things that we really, you, you, you know, you needed, and uh, I'm, I'm going to mumble about the prosthetic limbs a little bit because um, I spent several days in rehab medicine at Walter Reed at the very beginning of Iraq. Uh, and we're looking at kids coming back, like one in 26 kids coming back was an amputation. And the technology that we had at that point was really miserable. I hate to say miserable. It was primitive. Um, it could have been a lot better. We have we had new actuators, we had new robotic systems. We were looking at brain machine interface, and so when you put together, you know, DARPA puts together a team of people. Um, they put together the best in the world to solve the problem. And if you've seen the new arms that you, you know people can get now, where you can almost play the piano, you can pick up an M and M, put in your mouth, you can feel your kid when you give him a hug. You know, um, those are the kind of things DARPA does. The things that everybody says can't be possible. You know, you can see Boston Biodynamics, you know, with some of the robotics that now jump somersaults and can dance, you know, and you know, you, you see these things, you go, yeah, not possible, is possible. Technology is there. You just have to turn people loose with their brain. So, you know, four years at DARPA. Um, then I went out and I consulted for a while. I was at the University of Central Florida in their nanoscience department um, and helped a bunch of new faculty members get up and going. Uh, and then I went to work consulting. Um, I worked with, at a company that developed laser cataract surgery. I work for a Fortune 50 company um, that does food products and uh, you know, globally. And uh, for about 12 years in, in really being a consultant for technology development for them. Um, and then I went back to work for NASA <laughs> and have just retired from NASA the first of the year. Um, about six years ago, you know, I started working with Craig and a group of people around here. And looking to how we could take some of the technologies that were floating in DARPA, kind of, I don't want to say in limbo, but they hadn't grabbed on yet. And so Kuhlman is one of those technologies. It was developed by, you know, two investigators out of Stanford, Dennis Gron and Craig Heller. And um, it's a cool, it's a really cool technology. Uh, it was part of a program that I had called Peak Soldier Performance. And Peak Soldier Performance's goal was to increase strength and endurance in the average 18-year-old couch potato in a 12-week period by 20%, which is actually a pretty massive undertaking when you think of it. You know, you take the average high school kid who's done nothing but play computer games, and all of a sudden now you know you're going to put him in, in harm's way. If they're in the military, they're in the field of combat. And I really thought, the, you know, you, one of my goals was to, if I've got to put you there, let's make sure you've got the highest chance of coming back alive and well. I want to see you come home to your family. I don't want you being a casualty because you ran out of energy, because you weren't trained adequately, because you got too hot, um, because you ran out of calories. 
um, things that we I felt we could fix. And so Peak Soldier Performance was really intended to focus on trying to fix those deficiencies. Uh, you know, you can't ask a kid to go to Kuwait, put 90 pi- pounds of equipment on their back, walk through a desert at 115 degrees, and be in anywhere close to peak performance, being able to make the right decisions, having the right strength and endurance, and compete, you know, put, being put in harm's way where people are trying to kill you. Um, you know, if we're going to fight a war, let's p- put those kids in the best possible condition and give them the highest chance of winning and getting home fa- back to their family safely. And I will, and one other thing, one other thing that affected me at DARPA, um, I was there during 9-11. So it was, you know, uh, it was turning on the light switch of what you really needed to do and what you really needed to think about because now we were at war. Um, we were in a crisis situation and the meaning of Department of Defense changed meanings for me. Up until that point, it was a research activity. Now it was people's lives. So the uh, Joe tells a story that when DARPA was trying to poach him away from NASA, he was resistant at first because uh, I'm a pacifist. Uh, I'm not going to work on any program where it's going to kill people. And they're like, well, you can have this one where you can just make the soldiers bigger, stronger, and faster and come home alive. And he's like, okay, I can do that. So, you know, it, it's, you know, People ask me, I was actually asked one time how I could work for the Department of Defense. And I said, you know, I hate war. Everybody hates war. But I know one thing. The faster you end a war, the fewer moms have to cry on either side. And went into it with that attitude that, you know, this was about ending it and stopping it and bringing kids home alive. And I didn't care which side they were on. I wanted them to go back to their moms and dads alive. I had a guest on uh, Dan Bornstein who has been very instrumental in the kind of um, – military readiness as far as human performance and looking at the whole um, population and, you know, what pool do we have for military, for police, for fire? Um, and through pure statistics, I mean, he was kind of leading me through that, yeah, we are losing, you know, uh, people who are eligible as, as we get more and more deconditioned. 9-11 happens, you're in DARPA. What is kind of the, the information that you're given as far as the condition of the average American that's probably going to be signing up at that point 20 years ago? Probably wasn't much different than it is today. I mean, there were, you know, you're, you still had a technology-driven group of people. Um, you know, there weren't a lot. That, it was kind of, everybody was caught kind of unaware that, you know, what kind of condition do you have to be in to go into the military? We had a huge number of people enlisted. Uh, but, you know, getting them conditioned and getting them in the right physical condition was a problem. You know, we spent a lot of time talking even about, you know, special forces, um, you know, they get assigned for, you know, maybe deployed for 30, 60 days and they come back and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, first thing back, they've lost weight. They're in great physical condition. So what do they do? They go out and eat, eat beer, eat pizza and drink beer. Um, all the calories go to the wrong places, all of them not taking, keeping their body fit. And so, you know, some of it was how do you recondition, you know, the trained athlete, the trained warfighter. Uh, to keep them in peak physical condition during those periods where they're where they're not deployed, where they're not day to day engaged, you know, what can we do to make sure that their readiness is always there? Well, I want to walk through from nine eleven forward to some of the the kind of um, theories that you were looking to prove. But before we do, what was your nine eleven story, Greg? When I mean, where were you? And because I mean, you were in the financial area at that point. Well, <laughs> I wasn't expecting uh, that. So I was. Uh, my office was in Tribeca in New York, if you know that. So it's like downtown. Um, so we were, I think it was five blocks away from the, uh, the World Trade Center. Um, and so, uh, but right on the river. 
So I was on the trading floors. You know, if you can picture like you see on TV or movies, it's a big, uh, big floor, open floor of just like a zillion computers. There are TVs all around there. So, um, and there's a bad part of the story I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, um, about me, but, um, uh, rapacious, uh, financier Craig, uh, got involved. So, um, I saw this woman, uh, like running down the hallway. She'd gotten breakfast and she'd been, um, uh, um, on the, you know, on the, the riverside and saw the first plane hit. And I saw her go toward the, the back to me where the river was. And she's like explaining, uh, looking at her, her colleagues and telling them what she saw. And I looked up at the TV and saw a little hole in the first, uh, first tower. And, uh, I was like, that doesn't seem right. That's, and I'm a trader. So I'm like, that's uncertainty. I'm going to buy some, as much oil as I can. Cause I was trading oil at the time. So I bought a bunch of oil. Um, uh, is actually the R, the New York exchange wasn't open yet. It, the one in, in London was. So I bought it there. And then, um, the second one hit. And I swear to God in my head, I was like, I can't believe someone got video of this plane hitting the World Trade Center. Didn't realize until I saw two holes that it was the second plane. And I was like, holy crap. Uh, you need to get out of here. So I had some people that worked for me at the time. So like, we're getting out of here. Um, so, uh, walked, you know, down five flights of stairs, uh, to the, the street and the, um, we were so close that people were like looking up, like you can see they're like almost at a, you know, a 50 degree angle looking up. We we're so close and there's like smoke obviously coming out. So, um, anyway, long story short, I was like, this is not right. Um, so we need to get, you know, away from signature buildings in New York. So I kind of like, we'll call it marching my team away from, you know, signature buildings. So stopped at one point, uh, for a coffee at the, it's called the cupping room in, uh, in, uh, Soho. Um, and then we we're kind of leaving there. And then that's when I heard, or we heard the first one coming down. Um, and it's just like, it's just a, a rumble and people screaming and you got, you know, you can see the dust coming our way. So it's kind of like walked up through Manhattan. Um, I went to, uh, uh, walking through like Times Square area. It was like eerily quiet. Just like people are like walking like zombies. Uh, cause it's so, uh, cathartic. Um, I had a gym I used to, uh, be a member of the New York Athletic Club, which is right in the, on Central Park. So I went there, um, to kind of hang out, to hang my hat until the, the, uh, uh, things opened up. And, uh, so spent the day there and then they finally opened up. And frankly, the, the scariest part of the day for me was actually going through Grand Central Station because there's like just a teams of people. And I was like, if I was a terrorist, this would be my next stop, right? And there were like, there were cops, you know, at the, the entrances, but you know, anybody could have got through. So anyway, got home. We lived in this lovely little town in Connecticut. Um, you know, got, home, uh, hug the hell out of my family. And then our whole town, you know, there's some, um, inspiring things about it, but whole town without any organization just went down to our town beach and just like brought beers, food for the kids. And, you know, just talked, you can see from where we were smoke, you know, going across, um, Long Island because when it was going from, from the West. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, obviously cathartic day. I did lose some friends, uh, in towers. And I mean, I have, uh, cried uh twice in my adult life people argue i'm i'm uh uh have a uh deficiency of emotions but uh twice in my adult life and one was like a good buddy of mine uh had died in uh the first tower and just thinking what you know those people went through was just uh you know crazy and and you know certainly sobering and uh you know kind of should certainly catch up all of our attention and you know hopefully you know uh people can kind of remember some of the, the lessons from that uh, complacency and other things, uh, geopolitically, but also just how we can come together in those times of crisis. 
Uh, well, thank you for sharing that because I think that these are, you know, these are important conversations. I've had people from so many different perspectives, the Coast Guards that did the Marine evacuation to a Port Authority officer that was in the collapse, yeah. one of only two that they, they rescued. Um, I mean, it's such a powerful day and it's, you know, it's sad because if you look, I think it was about two, three years ago now, FDNY were fighting just for a basal cancer presumption for basically their family they were dying they, they weren't even going to get to see it but to take care of their families after they died from 9-11 related cancers and it's you know we say never forget but we do you know and now we've had this withdrawal from from iraq and afghanistan it's like okay this is our time to reflect post-covid post-war let's learn these lessons and let's figure out how to minimize the chance of this happening again it's a very good point i mean and, uh so many people are like sympathetic to and want to glorify you know uh military people and uh, there's zero reason to glorify me. Uh, you'll see a lot of people, you know, with their FDNY hats or the NYPD hats, you know, think, like you said, never forget. And you know, with the way they conduct their life, they, they just forget. It's a, it's a trope, uh, to, to say it and be great. You know, people, not people do, but, uh, more and more people to actually, you know, uh, do something about it as opposed to just like wear a t-shirt or a ball cap. Absolutely. Well, Joe, I mean, you're in NASA, you get, um, snatched by DARPA so walk me through your kind of 9-11 experience and then what shifted what changed as far as the assignment that you were given Craig was in New York I was in DC so DARPA's offices are in Arlington and so you know it was in, we had a, an eight o'clock briefing that morning we're in the meeting with you know people from the office from the defense science office with the director and somebody was doing a pitch for a pro new program and the first plane goes in, the secretary comes in and tells him what's going on. And, um, he goes, continue with the meeting. And the second plane he went in and she comes back in and say, tells him what's going on. And he, his words are very sobering. He, he said, gentlemen, this meeting's over. We're, I believe we're in a state of war. And, you know, from my office window, I could see smoke coming up from the Pentagon. Um, and five minutes later, um, we were required to evacuate the building, um, because you didn't know whether your building was a target too. So, you know, it was a very sobering day, and but it really helped get me focused as far as, you know, what kind of research needs did you have to have um, in a war, in a war zone, um, in a period of crisis? And, you know, what were we going to need to, you know, um, keep our warfighters safe and healthy? And so, you know, it, it, it gave you crystal clear focus and, uh, you know, pushed real hard on what the issues were. Now, as far as the, the kind of main ideas or projects that you were on, I know that there was a handful of things that you were kind of studying simultaneously. So what were they? Oh, I had some crazy things. Um, I inherited a program called Long-Term Storage of Blood Products. And you guys work with people who need platelets. And, uh, you know, so this was, could we freeze-dried platelets and put them on the shelf and rehydrate them and so they didn't have to be collected fresh every week and didn't require refrigeration? That product's somewhere in the FDA process now. Oh, so really? there will be freeze-dried platelets available to people. Um, to your shelf life, no refrigeration. Um, carry them with you whenever you need them. They can be pre-typed and, you know, match. So they're just kind of goofy things like that. That sounds terrible. Um, uh, then, uh, then Peak Soldier Performance was a, a major one, and that was really, you know, improving worst fighter strength. Um, four areas in it. One was um, what are the real bio the biomarkers of exhaustion? You know, when has a kid been pushed too far or tried to do too much to where they both lose judgment, physicality, 
and the, maybe the ability to survive. So, you know, and then we also looked at, you know, how do you increase mitochondrial density and muscle? We looked at how do you control core body temperature to maintain people at, in where their body temperature should be for optimal performance. And then um, Black Hawk Down, it happened not very much earlier than this, where, you know, one of the problems they had was um, they thought they were going to be gone for eight to 10 hours, and they ended up being gone for days, and nobody remembered to take food or water. So, you know, the problem was, you know, how could we get them a caloric supplement, lightweight, dense, that would let them be metab- remain metabolically sound? And so we, we looked at ketone bodies, and we looked at ketones. And so that was the other big pro- product, I think, that's gonna, that came out of that program was ketones. Everybody looked at me like, you're crazy. Um, you know, a ketone bar, um, small, lightweight, and yet now we've got that product on the market too. So um, that we, I had one called Rapid Vaccine Assessment. We wanted to develop an in vitro system for high throughput screening of human vaccines with human cells rather than having to ever never use a mouse for any vaccine testing. And um, that product was act- that program was actually bought uh, by Sanofi Pasteur. And they, they hold the patent on it right now. So it, it works. I mean, we, we don't need to use animals to do vaccine testing, um, which is, is a bit, you know, is, is big. Um, I had a program called Surviving Blood Loss. Uh, you know, if you're shot on the field of combat, you don't have very long to before somebody has to put a thumb in the dike and stop the bleeding or you're going to die. So we wanted to be able to extend the golden hour, that period where you could survive. But, you know, if you went past much past that, no matter what we did, you weren't going to make it. And so I wanted to extend that to a seven to eight hours. So we basically said, can I turn your body off completely so you don't have a requirement for oxygen? And um, they made some remarkable progress with that. There's a lot of controversy as to whether or not what was proposed works the way it was hypothesized to work. Um, but we're moving in the direction of being able to put people kind of in a state of suspended animation during period of severe injury and trauma. For a first responder, you know, think about a you know car accident victim that you could turn off right there, um, transport to the hospital, get them stabilized, and then turn them back on. Um, you know, it's science fiction sounding, but you know, in reality, that was the kind of thing we looked at. Um, I had a program called uh, Accelerated Anthrax Therapeutics. This also happened during the anthrax release in, D- in D.C. I was there. So uh, we looked at a lot of the mechanisms of how anthrax worked, how it caused disease. New, new anthrax vaccine came out of it. Um, new constructs for, for a new smallpox vaccine came out of it. Another one called unconventional pathogen countermeasures. Sounds terrible, um, but it really focused on biological warfare. And, you know, what do you have to do to counteract Unnamed, undetermined biological warfare agents. COVID probably would fall into that if it popped up. Um, but, you know, a lot of the response to that, you know, was based on some of the things that we, we did that far back. And, you know, there was some, this was before mRNA, but it was kind of the precursor to mRNA vaccines. But, you know, asking really hard questions about how do you stimulate the immune system um, before you're exposed? How do you prep it, prep it so it's ready to respond optimally? How do you get new vaccine constructs? And so, <clears throat> kind of a, just this weird mix of things. And then uh, the last, I had two other ones that we got started. One of them was called regenerative medicine. Is you know, basically, if you lost a limb, could I grow it back? Um, you know, it sounds completely science fiction-like, um, but there's a lot of stem cell biology going on that was stimulated by that, that early work in, in 2004, 2005. And uh, a lot of people, you know, we, we kind of turned the system on a little bit with the funding and asking questions about, you know, what do you do with the kid who's 
had big chunks of muscle blown off a leg. You know, you can amputate it, but can you grow back the muscle and get the bone and everything to come back, the nerves, the skin, and do it without him having a scar there? And so, you know, pushing, uh, you know, pushing the limits of, you know, regenerative medicine. And the last one was one that a colleague of mine took over when I left was called blood farming. And that was, could we get rid of the donor pool for blood, for the blood industry? Could I actually grow full units of blood in, in a culture system where I, from stem cells? So I never needed a, a donor. So I didn't have to worry about diseases. I didn't have to worry about typing. I could grow the blood that I knew I needed in the percentages that we needed. And we could do it in the back of a Humvee in a far forward field operation. So, you know, it was, it was kind of scientific fantasy land. Um, but we made progress in all those areas. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm not a researcher. I've never had a grant. I've never, I don't like bench work. Um, I don't know if I'm even a scientist. I know I can solve science problems and put together teams of people to get things done. And that's probably, you know, where my strong suit is, is give me the problem, six to eight weeks to think about it, identify the bottlenecks in either the science technology and turn around and try to find a solution set for it. Well, I mean, I would be remiss if I wasn't to ask you this next question. My my father, as we talked before, is a veterinary surgeon himself. And he's uh, on the academic side. And he, when he was a horse vet, we had a small animal practice. He had multiple surgeries at one point. Then he went and uh, lectured in Imperial College in London. Um, and so he's a very kind of cerebral thinker. And when the COVID epidemic first hit, he was telling me, look, from a veterinary perspective, you know, here's some of the treatments that we've used for the longest time. Here's my kind of, you know, perspective on on the vaccine. Um, and I've been very, very middle of the road. I, I ended up getting vaccinated so I could travel. I went and visited my grandmother, who was about to be 104 at that time. So I had no issues. I wasn't scared of it specifically, but but some of the kind of um, politicizing behind it was I could see why, why uh, there was a lack of trust. But I had people on the show who, one was a physician friend of mine in Texas that was did a great podcast on the efficacy of the vaccine and, and the, the the research behind it. Then I had someone else who's a firefighter who had lost his job through mandates, you know, so trying to keep it very, very fair and tell the whole story. With that veterinary perspective, with that high level, as you said, not a researcher, but that high level science background that you have and that not out the box, but flatten the box in the first place mentality that you were given in DARPA, what was apolitically what was your perspective of the last two years you know what what was the information you think that was correct and how and how should it have been put to people so there was trust i don't even know how to answer that (laughs) (laughs) um the vaccines work i know there's there's still a lot of distrust is what they are i mean i i i'm fairly certain bill gates is not inserting a chip into you with a vaccine um there are some questions on safety, you know, and um, I think there are always going to be questions on safety with vaccines. They're never 100%. Um, I think the big breakthrough that came with COVID, and this is not a defense of the process at all, is that normal vaccine development times is almost never less than two to three years. Um, mRNA, since I know the people at Moderna, um, you know, they told me that, you know, they, they understood the vaccine construct, the the what the antigen needed to look like in the spike protein, they were able to identify in three days. And they were able to have test amounts of the material within 30 days. We saved a lot of lives because of the speed with which they were able to make those initial discoveries, because normally that would have been a 12 to 18 month process. So, you know, 
I'm vaccinated. I just got my last booster last week. Um, you know, I have other friends who are going, there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to take that stuff. And I just go, please just don't die on me, okay? Um, but, you know, I think the vaccines are safe. Other people don't. Um, the entire political process there, um, health should not be political. It should be something that we, we seek, we work for, and we work to. Um, you know, that Hippocratic oath says cause no harm. And, you know, I don't believe anybody working on those vaccines intended anything to go wrong, even though we know with every vaccine there's going to be somewhere, some, somebody somewhere that it's not going to work right. You know, they, people have tried to stop making measles vaccine because one in a million kids would have a fatal reaction. Um, and they would be, you know, there's litigation that goes with that. Um, so the government finally said, you know, you can't do that anymore because we couldn't get people to stop making the vaccine. Um, vaccines have saved more lives than anything else except improved sanitation. You know, flush toilets and, you know, clean water. Uh, and vaccines have probably saved more lives on this planet than anything else. Yeah, I think from my perspective, um, the one big thing that really angered me was we had such a, an amazing opportunity to improve the nation's health, full stop. And we have a country of 70% obese and overweight Americans. And you're talking again about that pool of potential soldiers and firefighters and police officers. That's that's horrendous. So it was that um, politicized element you know, remove the actual common denominator, which was over, you know, underlying health. If you have a healthy immune system, you're going to have a good response to a vaccine. If you have a healthy immune system, and you choose not to have a vaccine, you're going to have a good chance of surviving what you get. And that wasn't in the conversation. So. Yeah, no, there was so much, I don't want to say misinformation, but certainly the facts were skewed um, to whatever position people felt they needed to take for whatever reason, um, to the detriment, I think, of a lot of people. Um, you know, this is one where, you know, we lost a lot of people in COVID. And, you know, it's, uh, I feel bad for everybody that, you know, went through this, that lost loved ones. And I, you know, I think my wife and I counted up that we have five friends that died of COVID. Uh, uh, you know, and I wish that hadn't happened to any of them. And most of them, were, some of them were vaccinated, some of them weren't. Almost all of them had secondary conditions. So, so you know, it's it's just not the way you want things to turn out. Um, we're still dealing with it. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to continue to get vaccinated and uh, keep my fingers crossed. So, you know, it's, um, I, you know, I did have COVID um, not too long ago. Um, it wasn't bad, um, but it almost kept me from going on a trip. So, uh, you know, it's just, now I think it's more of an inconvenience if you're vaccinated because I'm ho hoping fewer people are going to die. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just hope that we can look at the overall health thing. But I think that was the problem is that it was kind of flashed into people's faces. All right, you've got to listen to the politicians and the drug companies. And I'm like, well, you take two groups that people don't trust. It's politicians, drug companies, and just throw lawyers in there. And now you've got the trifecta. So yeah, know, I think it should have been people like yourself. It should have been the, the medical professionals apolitically saying, look, this is what it does. This is who's more vulnerable at the moment. There is this, these are the, the minute chances of these things that can happen. But overall, you have a, you know, a X amount percent that this is going to be, yeah. you know, going to be completely asymptomatic. And I was, I, I didn't have, even have a, a bruise on my arm. Yeah, I have friends and colleagues who were in high decision making places during that whole process. And I thought that is the crappiest job in the world, you know, to be 
at one of the highest levels in government and having to make decisions or have input in in the midst of a political storm. And, you know, I, I think I never want to be there. I never want to have to make those decisions. Um, were all the right decisions made? Probably not. Were all, well, did anybody do anything deliberately wrong? Probably not. You know, new stuff, new vaccine, um, new disease, lots of unknowns. And, uh, you know, let's just get through this and keep each other healthy and happy. And, and you're right. There are a lot of overweight and out of shape people in this country um, that need to think about what it means to, you know, be healthy. Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on one thing and then we'll go to you know, the, the thermal side. Um, you mentioned exogenous ketones. Now, you hear that a lot in the kind of biohacking, you know, podcasts that are out there. And um, But what was interesting listening to you on one of the podcasts that you did, um, it was the health and nutrition podcast, if I got that right. Um, you were talking about the this other kind of macronutrient being kind of um, – uh, denied by a lot of the scientific community. And it reminds me of Dr. Russell Foster, who came on, who's an ophthalmologist and a neuroscientist who found the um, chronoreceptor, the, the photoreceptor mm -hmm. in the eye, and was lauded by his profession initially, well, there's just rods and cones, that's all there is, until he took years and proved through different experiments that, yes, indeed, you can be blind, rods and cones, and still maintain a circadian rhythm. So talk to me about when you have this out of the box or no box thinking and you are, you know, trying to forge a new path and a lot of the people around you have learned things in textbooks that have taken as gospel, what is the philosophy within, within your organization to start kind of kicking in the doors of some of these, uh, uh, closed minded audiences that you have? The structure of scientific revolutions, you know, paradigm shifts take a long time. To, for people to come around. You know, the ketones is another good example. I did triathlons for about 15 years. I was mediocre, but had a lot of friends, did think, had something to do every week, and, uh, you know, trained, had a good time doing it, including Ironman distance things. And, you know, I knew somewhere between 37 and 45 miles on the bike, I was going to run out of available carbohydrates. You've already swum two miles. You're now riding and you're going to burn everything, all your stored glycogen. And I said, you know, I know looking at my body, I've got, you know, at that point, probably 12 to 15% um, fat, um, but I couldn't access it. You can't get to it when you need it. You know, it's, a, it's, it's intended to be a storage product and, and access slowly under periods of metabolic stress. So the real question was, okay, I've depleted my glycogen. I can't get carbohydrates into me. Can I get, you know, can I use ketones? And we jokingly, you know, kind of said, okay, what would happen if, you know, could you use beta-hydroxybutyrate as an energy source? And so, you know, lo and behold, if you, you put out a request, is there anybody crazy enough out there looking at this? There's a, there are a couple people, uh, you know, Bud Veach and Kieran Clark. Kieran's at Oxford, Bud was at NIH, um, where the investigators came back to me and said, we think we can do this. We've got some scientific evidence that says it'll work. For that matter, there's a class of kids children that are carbohydrate intolerant that have seizures 100 times a day if they're fed carbohydrates. On ketones, they don't have seizures. Um, there are people who are keto you know, carbohydrate intolerant who just gain weight no matter what they do. You know, so my question was, you know, if I've got this stored energy. Why can't I get to it? And the answer you know, was it, you know, it has to do with fat metabolism. So could we basically you know, provide ketones in a concentrated form 
readily absorb, fast, give you that little bit to get you through a Black Hawk, Hawk Down experience. Survive two to three days on ketones. You know, we special forces guys probably go through, if they're working 12 to 14 hours a day, and if you look at construction workers, you know, as a baseline for energy utilization, uh, special ops guys probably are going through 10 to 12,000 calories a day. Think about Michael Phelps's training routine. You know, um, I can't put 12,000 calories a day into you. You know, that's 56 power bars or something if you want to do the count. So, you know, how do you get something concentrated where I can maintain your energy stores, keep you cognitively functioning, physically functioning, you know, not exhausted, um, emotionally stable, and, you know, in something that you can put in your rucksack and take it with you. And it ended up that, you know, ketones will work to do that. Um, right now, you know, I'm fairly certain that 80% of the Tour de France riders are using them. Um, and they work, uh, as, as predicted. They store muscle glycogen, and they'll carry you through those periods of intense physical stress. See, it's I can see the application also in the fire service, especially the wildland fire service. Right, where so they're out those, the boonies. Yeah, yep, they're out there. You know, obviously, this, if they're um, smoke jumpers, they got to you know jump with X amount on their body, and that can't exceed, I'm sure, a certain weight. So, you know, the application there is fascinating for me. We're going to talk about cool mitts, so an application of cooling. Um, I can say, hand on my heart, in the fire service, I don't think I ever had an incident that fatigued me from pure aerobic. Um, you know, an aerobic capacity element, but it was always the heat that absolutely destroyed me because our bunker gear doesn't offload. It heat. doesn't breathe real well, does no. it? And I've and I've only ever yep. worked. I'm an Englishman. I've only ever worked in California and Florida, so didn't exactly <laughs> choose the best states for it either. So I want to get Craig back in the conversation, but for the origin story, talk to me about um, the heat um, exposure or heat exhaustion element of the. The, the subjects that you're trying to, to well, empower overseas from a DARPA yeah, point of view. Picture about ground forces, you know, walking from Kuwait to Baghdad in a 100-degree temperature, carrying 90 pounds, body armor, helmet, long sleeve shirt, long sleeve, you know, long pants, um, boots, um, probably gloves for some of this, and, you know, uh, physically exhausted. And, you know, the question was, is, you know, how far can you push at those kind of temperatures? And, and you as a firefighter kind of know that, you know, you hit a temperature max and you have to stop. And, uh, you know, the, the Craig Keller and Dennis Gron out of Stanford, they said, you know, we find that most athletes, most people who are heat stressed when their body temperature hits about 102 and a half, um, plateau and have to slow down. As their core body temperature comes back down, they can perform again. And so, you know, we, then we said, okay, that's great. We understand that. Uh, how do we extract heat from the body? And, uh, you know, so the normal method the Army had been using is, you know, kind of cooling vests. And um, both Dennis and Craig came back and said, you know, the body works as a thermostat, kind of. It's a, it's a temperature sensor. It's not a temperature regulator. So I can tell I'm hot because I can feel it across my skin. He says, then they said, you know, we dump heat in ways that you're not thinking. We dump heat through the palms of our hands, the soles of our feet, and the knot-haired portions of our face. And, you know, everybody else kind of thinks about well, how that work. And it ends up that most quadrupeds, most four-legged animals, dogs, cats, lions, bears, all cool the same, through the palms of their feet, their, palm, their soles of their feet. Um, and if you think about it, the ground in the for, in forest situations, at least, is about 10 degrees lower 
than it is six feet above the ground. So the, there's definitely a cooling part there. So being four-legged and walking through a cool soil will cool you pretty effectively regardless of your energy activity. But what do animals do when they overheat? They stop. Um, warfighters don't have that choice. Firefighters don't have that choice. You know, you guys are expected to go on and put yourself at risk and continue to increase the risk as body temperature goes on. And you know you're getting weaker. You know you're probably, your decision-making is getting a little fuzzy. Your emotionality is changing. Um, and your attention to detail is disappearing. And what we found is that, you know, by cooling, maintaining the cooler core body temperature, all, we can improve all those things as far as performance indicators. And so, you know, that means that, one, you can you may be able to go a little longer, you can recover a little quicker, you can make better decisions, and not put yourself at as, as great a risk as you might, might happen otherwise. And so, you know, this, to me, is a win-win situation for the firefighter and the warfighter. Um, you know, cooling vests don't work. Um, they just don't. And people, a lot of times, you know, you see people who put cold compresses, you know, on the neck and in the armpit. And you, those are big, great big vascular hoses there. You know, you've got your, your jugular, your carotids, you've got your subclavians, you've got, you know, but that's like trying to cool a garden hose. On the other hand, you've got a capillary bed in the palms of your hands that is 20 times greater than it is on the top of your hand. So if you take, you know, it's basically like cooling the surface of a football field like versus cooling the surface of a garden hose. So, you know, it's far more efficient, far more effective. Blood moves slower through, through the capillaries. Uh, and so there's a greater time for heat transfer at that point, getting heat out and putting, you know, kind of lowering core body temperature. But it's all going back to the heart and getting pumped to the entire body. So it has a systemic effect. And all we know is that no matter how many times we try it, it seems to work. Um, people have tried to say, no, it doesn't work for crap. Um, you know, but I can, I know if I get on the, my Peloton and I put in an hour on it, um, with a cool mitt, I will go about 8% further than I would without it every single time. You know, 8% in a bicycle race is a long distance. And, and we've actually seen, you know, Tour de France riders using it during their warm up and cool down periods, uh, especially for time trials. So, you know, we know it's working because they seem to be getting a benefit from it. Everybody who uses it right um, and understands the physiology behind it uh, pretty much will see a benefit from it. If people, you know, don't use it for a long enough period of time, um, may not be that obvious. Um, you stop sweating faster. Um, you feel a little bit more refreshed. And if I can take, and Craig will talk about this, I can take a professional basketball player and in two minutes during a timeout, give him back maybe 20% of his performance that he lost because of heat, um, he's going to play a whole lot better third quarter. And so, you know, it's just, it's this incremental ability to, you know, cool people. And and it's non-invasive. Um, it's non-harmful. We have not been able to find a downside to it um, because we keep, the temperature doesn't go down um, anywhere near where you would end up with frostbite or, you know, any thermal injury from cooling. Um you know, safe, effective, and has proven time and time again to work. Yeah. So the beauty of what uh, Dr. Heller and Gron discovered at, at Stanford and how this can be leveraged is uh, this is the uh, the non scientific portion of the program, James. Um, but uh, as Joe said, the rest of our body, uh, where where we have uh, skin and, and hair follicles, has uh, the arterial structure of arteries to capillaries to veins, and the capillaries are very you know narrow and resistive. And they discovered that if you can lever the the glabrous portion of the body, it's called so the soles, the palms, and the upper portion of the face, it has a different arterial structure. So it has arteries to what are called AVAs or arterial venous anastomoses. That's a 
uh, to the veins. So again, for the non-scientists, that's very uh, good job by me. I'll pat myself on the back for throwing that out there. But they basically uh, serve as, as wider shunts that allow for more rapid flow of blood from the arteries to the veins when the body wants to dump that heat. So they basically serve as really effective radiators, allow you to dump heat. And so if you can, they posited and Joe with, uh, you know, finance him to prove if you can, um, you know, leverage that part of the body with technology, you can then actually um, very effectively pull that heat out of the body and you can kind of cool yourself from the inside out. So you came from the finance side. Walk me through how how these paths crossed then. Yeah. So Joe and I met each other through a mutual friend and started, you know, working together. And, you know, he uh, briefed me on the the fascinating uh, stuff that he had, he had uh, financed at DARPA and, you know, met Dr. Heller and Gron out of Stanford. And, and, you know, they had subsequent years of developing the technology. And we saw that there's a very clear need and use for, for this technology. So we formed the company uh, with the founding scientists uh, involved. And so, um, uh, you know, there's a good do-gooder part of me and there's also a financial opportunity as part of me like this can actually be a really good business and it is because I mean as Joe said the um, the the DARPA uh, technology is revolutionary science and so it may seem very you know straightforward now um, but the benefits of actually being able to control your core temperature has just so many uh, uh, acute and chronic uh, use cases through all of uh, all people for uh for human performance as well as for human safety down the road. So we took, uh, the most recent version out of Stanford's lab, um, that they had, you know, that, that stage. Um, and we basically, you know, went out and had a short run of prototypes of that, just to prove that we could re- rec- recreate it. And we did got that in the hands of some, some key athletic partners. Um, and then did the next version of the, uh, of the device. And now we're in, in pretty, uh, pretty uh, scale production of that version. So we have um, uh, started off on the, the high performance side because, uh, you know, it's a good early market for us. Uh, we didn't mention that, you know, what another thing that Dr. Heller and Gron uh, discovered beyond the fact that they can cool somebody down over twice as fast uh, core temperature than any other measure, any other measure. Um, you know, they found that the second fastest measure is, is ice packs in the armpits and the groin simultaneously. Again, that's half as fast and our, our solution is way easier and less cumbersome. Um, not everybody wants to strip down and put ice packs on their balls. Um, we've, uh, we found. Speak for yourself. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> the time and place for everything, I guess, right, James? Um, but, uh, so, um, they basically stumbled upon the fact, uh, you know, as they're trying to prove they can cool somebody down, that if you can, while you're working out or training as a uh, an athlete, and uh, you can, if you can pull that heat out of your body, uh, you can then go perform better. So you know, basically, if you're going to a strength exercise, uh, go into failure. What's happening is your localized muscles are o- overheating. Your body, uh, you know, tells you to stop doing that. Uh, that's the non-biologist telling you what's happening there. But your body tells you to stop doing that. Uh, if you have a rest period before your next set. You put your hand in or vaso uh, cool or uh, Palmer cooling, pull that heat out of your body. You go to your next set. You're pretty close. You know, you can be pretty close to where you were for the first set. So you can then go do the same number of reps and you train like that over time. They showed in a number of published papers and we've had validated with our technology with some elite athletes that you train like that over time. There's a metabolic adaptation where your body, you have sustained gains of, in that example, the strength um, on the endurance side. Um, you know, Joe's saying on his, on his Peloton bike when he's, uh, training and if he goes to exhaustion, um, 
what's going to happen is slowly that core temperature is going to rise to 102 and a half or so, right? Depends on, on people's, uh, have different thresholds. But if you can forestall that happening, you can just go harder for longer. So, and with our device set up properly, you can actually have it next to your bike or even on the bike, you can actually have it while you're, you're, uh, you're training. And so it just, uh, it takes longer to get to that point where you fail. So again, you can train harder for longer. Same thing if you're doing like interval endurance training. So you do uh, an 800 uh, on the track and then you have a minute rest in between. You get cool for that minute and then go do your next rep. You're going to, you're going to be stronger. You're going to be fresher. So basically the, the, the larger picture premise is, um, if I'm overheated and my body wants to dump heat, you can use this approach and this technology, pull the heat out of your body, cool you, cool your muscles, uh, from the inside out. And then the next time you go to do whatever you're going to do, uh, you're going to be fresher and be better able to perform. So, um, as we said, we started this technology, this company with the technology, been, uh, you know, producing the product or developing the product and we'll have be a constant state of, uh, refining the product. But, um, our first customers have been, um, elite athletes and special forces military, um, the high performers who are looking for the edge, um, just because, you know, for business purposes, a lot of reasons to do that way is we kind of, they can help us teach us, you know, what are the best features are for the, um, for the technology. They can also give us really good feedback on the performance side. So dozens of, um, uh, of pro and college teams, special forces, military across every, every branch, um, crossfitters, Olympians, Tour de France teams, um, uh, all are, you know, coming back with, you know, uh, this, you know, good feedback. This is, you know, transformative way to, to, to train. Um, and so, uh, we're really excited to, uh, to get to the, to the first responder and firefighter markets. I really want to talk to you about, um, because we always had it in our plan to, you know, to address this market, but because of, uh, you know, some in, inbound, uh, inquiries us, we've accelerated our plan to try to get to the firefighters in particular, because it's a really, we think straightforward use case to help them out, uh, in a lot of different ways. But, you know, the, the first one, uh, probably want to talk about is like during the rehab um rehab setting so um i i you want to talk a bit about like you know what your uh viewpoint is on like you know when you're coming out of the fire during that rest period like what you're trying to accomplish yeah i mean like i said for me and i think a lot of a lot of the fire service are in pretty good shape so usually it's the heat is the the factor that really limits us so you'll have um you know uh rehab where you'll sit down and Again, back to the ketones. Usually it's a bottle of Gatorade, which is not, in my opinion, the best rehydration. It's great sugar water. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, but, but, so it's going to be the idea is there, but maybe the application is kind of missing. I, I would say the best cooling practice I've ever seen in Hialeah, my very first apartment down in uh, Miami, was they actually, and this was in the academy, it wasn't the fires, but they had buckets of ice water with the towels and it went over your head so it was i'm thinking about now probably going over your face and that was really where it was cooling um and you're holding it too probably so it's it's the same kind of problem with that is if you're holding something really cold like below 55 degrees you're going to vasoconstrict and you you basically shut down all the blood flow to your hand you know so it's kind of counterproductive if that water is you know 55 60 um, they say vasodilated, and so you can optimize temperature. And so we've taken all that is in the design of the device. You know, we, we've kind of set it up so that, you know, we don't want you to vasoconstrict. We want to keep you vasodilated. We want to ma- maximize the delta, the, the change, the temperature of 
the water that's cooling you and your body temperature to the greatest extent possible because we can get it down fastest that way. But, you know, it's there is a range in there that is functional and works. So, you know, it's it, it just it's one of those kind of no-brainer things. And if you think about, you know, what, what do you do if you're really hot intuitively? You'll stick your hands in cold water. I mean, if you're really cold, you do what everybody does. You stick your hands either in your crotch or your armpits. And but what you're actually doing is you're you're using the, those AV the AVNSMOSES in your hands um, to transfer heat to dump it or get it, and so you know it's 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 intuitive for us to do that. We're just trying to optimize a system that allows you to do it faster. Yeah. So speaking of the system, so um, I said we had an evolution of the the technology from Stanford to what we're producing now. So the device now is uh, really well suited for uh, for training. Certainly, it's portable. It is um, battery operated. The battery can go for eight hours running continuously in a uh, you know, normal environment. Um, it does require ice as a heat sink. Uh, but the important thing is um, uh, the upper portion of the, the device controls the water flow. And there's a tubes that go into an interface you put your hand on. And that uh, delivery method has been, you know, uh, refined through years at Stanford, uh, a lot of trial and error to get the best way, but, um, it basically leverages thermodynamics and convection to basically pull the heat out of your body and take it away. So there's, as Joe said, uh, water is a constantly, uh, appropriate temperature running across your hand, uh, comes in at 55 degrees or so. Um, uh, your hand warms it up, that warmer water goes away, and then the cooler water comes in. So a constant flow, basically pulling that heat out of you and taking it away. So- you think of it as a counter, it's a countercurrent cooling system, you know, which is more fi- efficient than just a cooling sink. So, you know, it's um, probably 15% more, 20% more efficient to have it be countercurrent. Um, we could do something that just put something cool, cool in there, um, but we don't think it's going to be as efficient or provide the same speed of, you know, the same speed of temperature reduction. So, you know, it's, it's all about focusing on how do we, you know, get you down earliest. And th- the worst part about the device and the technology and the scientific concept is you don't feel it happening. You know, when, you know, you know you're tired, you know, you're, you know, you're fatigued. Uh, as you start to feel better, there's no great buzz. Um, there's nothing, you know, there's no lights flash. Nothing happens really dramatically. You just go out and perform better. And that's real hard for a lot of people to kind of come to grips with. Well, I'm just better trained. Obviously, it wasn't the device. It was my training. Well, probably not. It was probably the device and your, tra- your training was just baseline. So, you know, it's it's kind of getting people over the hump that, you know, there is no magic that happens here except for the physiological changes and how your body systemically responds to being cooler. Yeah, it's an education mission we have to do to let people know that that it's working. So, like Joe said, um, something you feel like a breath of fresh air going through you when it's happening. You don't sense your core temperature. You sense your uh, surface temperature. Um, and so you can actually feel cooler, but, you know, we talked earlier about putting like a cold compress on the back of your neck, which is a lot of people, you know, do. Um, the scientists have told me, and I, uh, they know what they're talking about, um, that that, uh, sends a signal to your brain that you're cooler than you actually are. It's kind of like shuts down you addressing your core temperature issue. So, um, with this, you know, approach, it is working. Um, you'll see yourself stop and sweat quickly. But um, uh, otherwise, you'll just see the you know the the results when you start doing your next next round of, of work. Um, and so again, as Joe said, that is part of our our education mission to get out there. That's um, not magic. You've got to be in an overheated state, and when you're in that state, it's transformative to take that heat out of your body and uh, and cool you down. And and your core temperature is really what is going to impact 
you know, really your functionality and your performance. Yeah. And the other thing is people look at the literature on fatigue and exhaustion and, and exertion. You know, you get stuff coming back on the metabolomics, on lactic acid buildup, and you know, all the biochemical things that are happening. If you plug in the word temperature or thermal control to it, you get you get a whole different body of literature. And so there's, you know, um, with respect to exhaust, fatigue and exhaustion, uh, the literature is there. But if you just do the normal Google kind of search, it doesn't take you there. It takes you the traditional biochemical physiology route. Um, and so this is a I won't say it's it's an offshoot, but it needs to be integrated a little bit better so people start to understand you know, the importance of thermal regulation and performance. So, um, as I mentioned, we had uh, uh, always had a plan to to get to the first responders, um, and a lot of inbound traffic. You know, saying this is great, we need it from the firefighting community in particular, and a lot of uh, police uh, officers as well. Um, and so we literally thought like, you know, this device works great. We know it works great. We're like, you know, we kind of think we should get like a more industrial version for the, the firefighters in our, in our mind. Um, we had like a, a kind of, you know, big gang use system, like, you know, picture of the size of like a mini refrigerator or something, bunch of guys can go on at once and not have to, uh, require the ice component. And, you know, the firefighting community, your community said, uh, that is dumb. Uh, what you have is actually way better than, uh, than what that would be. Um, so the portability of the device, um, is, uh, a, um, a benefit for the community. Uh, it can be put on the, fi- the, the engine. It can be you know, in the, the chief's, uh, truck. It can be in the rehab truck. Um, and, you know, any number you can, you know, uh, put a bunch in a row and have five guys go on it at once. So it's, uh, you know, very flexible and easy to use. And it works very, very quickly. So that's why, you know, we, we do kind of harp on, you know, we are a science-based company. Uh, we harp on the fact that, uh, this delivery method is the most effective method. Cause when you're in that situation, you want it to be as, as effective and as fast as possible. You don't want it to be, you know, waiting, you know, longer than you need to. So, um, that's why we're, we're focusing on, you know, the, the best performing technology to get it out there to have the most, uh, impact and benefit. And you can turn it on before you even go into a structure. So it's already cooling when you when you need it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to last six to eight hours. And we've even done some temperatures at ambient 105, and it's still working six hours later. So, you know, we know that, you know, it, it's going to hold up to, over time. It's also fairly rugged. I mean, you can – I don't want to say you can bounce it, but you can drop it. And we prefer not, you not. Yeah, bounce. but it's – you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's not a real – It's not, not fragile. Yes. Yeah, well – it probably is in some people's minds, uh, but you know, it, it's a little bit, it has been ruggedized to some extent. Yeah. We haven't had uh, a lot of uh, devices sent back for, for being broken. But so you know, as we launch into the, um, you know, the firefighting world in particular, there are um, some published papers from, from Stanford to kind of show in a lab setting, like how this would impact the body. Um, you know, one in particular was a uh, treadmill and PPE <laughs> in a hot room. I, I forget if you were part of that one or not. I, I didn't wear the PPE. I did it in shorts and a t-shirt. But so it's like 104, 105 degrees and on a treadmill. 13 degrees incline. Um, I, I think it's at f- four miles an hour. You just have to walk. It's exhaustion. Yeah. That's like I said, with, with no heat being off offset, then yeah, that, that changes everything. And so they had them um, as uh, the unfortunate reality is the the most uh, uh, accurate measurement of core temperature 
is an esophageal tube, which Joey, you want to say, say what that looks like? Uh, it Basically, it's a small wire that goes either in your nose or in your mouth and halfway down your esophagus and sits behind your heart. Um, totally uncomfortable. Totally, 99.9% of everybody says, you know, no way in hell am I going to use that. So it's, it's, it's really hard to get accurate data. Um, Craig and Dennis out at Stanford did actually run some studies with several of their uh, you know, s- subjects using an esophageal st- you know, t- thermometer. And, um, you know, it's reliable, but we're, we're pretty close with the w- methods that we're using right now. Um, one of, I, I would just use one of their graduate students that, you know, he was kind of an upper body workout guy and he liked doing pull-ups. And, uh, you know, he started out, and I don't remember, Craig, you can correct me in the numbers, but, you know, he was able to do, you know, six sets of 10 and you know, he take two minutes off between sets. I think he went to failure, and he was started like yeah. twenty some odd pull ups, and I think they had him doing ten sets with three minutes. That's what, yeah. So you know, just do ten, take a two minute rest, ten two minute rest, ten two minute rest, and you're right. I think he went to about thirty the first time, you know, which is not bad. Um, then they started to cool him between sets, you know, with the device, and so what they found is he started to creep up. Well, I you know six weeks later. Um, he has been using the device every other, every day, every other day, and he's up to 109. Oh, you know, so, I mean, this, this dramatic improvement, and he actually stopped, not because he was exhausted. He stopped because he was getting, um, what's the word I want? Repetitive. Tendinitis. <laughs> tendinitis. And, but, you know, but from a muscle point of view, he was able to, you know, go way beyond what anybody thought he would be able to do. And if he didn't cool, his performance would flatten. If he, if he didn't cool for several days, it would flatten. When he started to cool again, it would incrementally go up. So, you know, and we've got a number of, you know, per- performance indicators like that that show, you know, this definitely will allow you to outperform what you did yesterday. And so, um, you know, from a business perspective, uh, uh, as been established already, I am the greedy capitalist from Wall Street. But uh, so there's definitely a uh, a reason why we want to get into the firefighting market, and um, you know, working with pro athletes um, and helping their performance and helping a guy who's training for the NFL Combine get more bench presses. There's a satisfaction in that, but you know the the reward for us to be able to serve a a community that's serving us uh, and help them out in their their job performance, their wellness. And we can talk about some of the, the chronic things we can help out with this technology with the firefighters in particular, uh, is become like a, you know, certainly a mandate or a passion of ours to, you know, again, not just a greedy capitalist passion, but a, a passion to actually, uh, serve people. So, you know, one thing we know we need to do is we have really good, you know, pretty realistic, uh, scientific data from the lab. Like I said, the, the hot room showing how quickly they can cool somebody down. has been wearing PPE. And so, you know, part of our mission has been to try to get as much real world validation of that, uh, as we can. Uh, Homewood, Alabama Fire Department reached out to us, wanted to do a, uh, to study with our technology. So, uh, we, you know, structured it with them. Um, you know, they bounced it off us to make sure they would uh, have be a positive, you know, uh, or at least a setup to where it should work, right? So uh, it was in uh, a few months ago. It was in the spring. So it wasn't hot out. It was like mid-50s um, Fahrenheit. I know you're uh, maybe not used the Celsius system, but Fahrenheit. So like 13, 14 Celsius. Um, but uh, – and so we had 10 volunteers. And uh, our um, 
Michael Lombard was great uh, helping us, working with us. Uh, chief Ashworth, his chief, uh, was super supportive of, of it and uh, really wonderful firefighters volunteered to do this. And we put them through, uh, through their paces. So the structure of the test was um, at their burn building in Homewood. It wasn't burnt up, but um, it was two, two sessions of workout. So 10 guys volunteered. We had them strapped with, uh, it was called Zephyr Performance System. So it's like an athletic, um, we got it from one of our, our sports teams as an idea, but a system that, uh, dynamically downloads physiological and mechanical data. Um, so we get, you know, what happened in their body and how much their body's working, basically. Um, this download is a huge amount of data. Uh, and we have an independent, uh, data analyst company, uh, going through the numbers, which I can kind of talk about in a second. But so the structure of the test was, um, Three active sessions, um, full gear bottle uh, for 20 minutes. So they went into the burn building, did their firefighter stuff, um, and then came out and did like uh, um, the uh, the exercises outside with you know the the um, the Kaiser sled and and all those. Um, and so 20 minutes work, uh, 20 minutes of rehab, uh, and so we encouraged them to do their their normal uh, rehab routine. They had like a little rehab trailer there set up. So again, all 10 guys were strapped in with a Zephyr. On day one, um, the uh, five guys used our technology to cool and five guys didn't. They just you know, did these exact same procedures, but you know, just five guys were able to cool for uh, ended up being 10 minutes of the 20 minute rehab. There was a little bit of transition from you know, getting out of their gear, turnout gear, um, and then getting to the, to the um, uh, into the rehab trail, which would be pretty standard, right? Um, so the um, so 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, day one, day two, same, uh, same workout. Uh, if you cooled the first day, you, uh, didn't cool the second day and vice versa. So, um, you know, really, uh, you know, pretty realistic, uh, at least training, um, and, you know, potentially realistic for a fire, um, uh, environment, uh, you know, but it's not, scientific study we realize there's limitations to it you know there's small sample size uh it's you know there's some level of uh, um, uh self-selection on the uh, exercises they did um and there's always you know challenges when you're testing on humans um as opposed to you know some other things but um so we got some you know really good feedback for one um but we also got some uh some really good data that uh that we can share so you know some of it is um uh, and we used, uh, and it's appropriate to, to use, um, like heart rate, um, as a proxy for, for core temperature. They do kind of move in a correlated fashion. This system does have a, um, a core temperature gauge, but as, you know, Joe was talking earlier about the esophageal tube measure, is it being more accurate? I think this, this measure is accurate in trend, but maybe not accurate so much discreetly in, in numbers, but it did kind of validate the approach. So, um, uh, a few things that we can, we were able to show from this data. One is um, effectively through the whole time period, <clears throat> each individual was able to kind of perform the same amount of work. So there's no like drop off in work one way or the other. And as a structure of the study, because there's 10 guys and they're doing like, you know, uh, a test on themselves. So we have data aggregate of all 10 people, cooling and non-cooling. We also have data on each individual, cooling versus non-cooling. So some some good stuff came out of that. All that makes sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So um we ha- we are able to isolate when they were in the recovery or rehab session, um, when they act passively cooled, so just their normal uh, routine and uh, looking at heart rate recovery, um, recovery rate uh, as a measure. When they passively cooled, it was effectively like five beats per minute the entire time 
at least for the first 10 minutes. And then it, you know, kind of like gravitated more towards uh, to uh, being done recovered. Um, so five beats per minute when they're um, when they're passively cooling. When they cooled again as an aggregate group, in the first minute it was like over 14 beats per minute. So nearly three times as fast a rate of recovery of their heart rate. Um, the second minute it was like over nine, so almost twice as fast. Third minute it was uh, you know seven, and then it kind of started to gravitate towards five after minute four or five. So the important thing is you know pretty exponential rate in the first part when you first start using it, which has a, a, you know, a big benefit, not just, um, you know, acutely, but, you know, your body uh, recovering quicker, there's, you know, benefits for you longer term, going to be fresher, you know, just by the virtue of the fact that your body is cooled quicker, if that makes any sense. Um, So that was a really um, important uh, finding that we had. And again, the important thing is like, we're able to show that they performed basically the same amount of work. On, on all the sessions. So it wasn't like anything like the number numbers were corrupted, like, oh, guys were tanking when they um, when they had been cooling, so they did less work. So it was all kind of like showing they did the same amount of work with lower heart rates as a group. Um, so that was a, a very good finding for us. We were also able to show um, that uh, we kind of able to isolate it for each individual, like for their individual max heart rate. So we kind of measured like when, you know, Whenever their max heart rate was, use that as a benchmark and try to figure out how they recovered relative to that. And so we're able to show that, you know, throughout the training exercise, their heart rate and their um, their core temperature by that measure were both lower when they cooled versus when they non-cooled, which is, again, what we expected from the science because uh, we've seen it in the lab. But it was, you know, good for us to be able to kind of show it in a more real-world scenario. Um, and then... The other side of that coin is, you know, once you're more recovered um, uh, and you're coming in from a lower base of, of temperature and heart rate, when you go back in to the the next round of, of work, you're going to be fresher and be able to, you're not going to have the same, you know, uh, spike in heart rate uh, if you're if you're recovered. So we uh, kind of uh, were able to isolate them like in their last training session uh, after cooling or not cooling um, with uh, when they cooled. Uh, the first minute, they were uh, 20 beats per minute lower than they were when they had not cooled. So they were that, that much lower than, and when they went in. Similar, 23 beats per minute, three minutes, 20 beats per minute less uh, when they at, at five minutes. So basically, when they're going back in and working, they're fresher to do that work they have to do, which again validates you know what we anticipated from the science. So we're really uh, excited to get that kind of like you know real world type of data. Again, we know it's not a, a full on like scientific study. It's just a, a test we did. But we are looking to do, you know, get as much of this data from other tests we can do. And we're, you know, we're talking to a couple of different area fire departments and academies to to do some more of this work. I mean the application I think is is perfect because you have rehabs so you have as you saw in this this test you have a specific time where we're told to sit down doff our gear have some water you know some electrolytes and so it's the perfect time where you could also add this as you know was you know the cool towels or the, the fan with the mist or you know whatever else you've got as well um but also for me you know, so many times when we're in the middle of a workout we get banged out to a call and so if you have the foresight to fire this up prior and have it sitting in the cab, if you do get a call on the way to the fire, as long as you've already got everything on, you can slip your hands in and try and pre-cool a little bit before you have to mitigate that as well. Yeah, you want to talk a bit about the, the pre-cooling uh, use case or you know the, the science yeah, behind you know, that? 
if you can lower your core body temperature even below where it is baseline, um, just a little bit, again, the delta, the time it takes to get to that critical 102 and a half is extended. So you, you, you will get benefit from it. I think, um, one of the athletic groups that, you know, routinely prequels, even though I'm not sure they do it the most efficient way are race walkers. And, uh, most race walkers will warm up and then they actually get in an ice bath to lower their core body temperature. Um, because they know they're going to go 20 kilometers at a good pace. So, you know, uh, but, and they've, we found the same benefit uh, you know, with cool mitt as the ice water. Their ice may actually probably more benefit with the ice water, with the cool mitt than with the ice water. And, uh, you know, we've got some examples from, you know, Olympic performances that in fact, they, there appears to be an, an anecdotal benefit for people who had never performed it that well before have now just set a personal record, um, you know, when using the device. Yeah. We had some, um, an unexpected but good exposure in, during the Tour de France. So, one of the our, our partners is one of the, the Tour de France teams, <clears throat> and uh, their scientists had reached out to us and they had really good results during the tour for recovery. Uh, might not be surprised they're not uh, uh, didn't have it on their bike as they're riding the Tour de France, but um, well, they were able to use it um, in the uh, the uh, post race. the not, post race for one, but they use it in the pre cooling version before the the sprint trials. So mm-hmm. the second to last day, um, one of the their top rider. They, you know, found him on uh, NBC Sports and he was had it attached to the trainer to warm up. So, that, again, the function of warming up is to get your muscles loose, but you don't necessarily want to have your core temperature rise. So, Dr. Heller always blanches at that term, uh, warm up. You don't want to warm up. You just want your muscles to get more elastic. Uh, so, if you can perform that function with your muscles, but then cool yourself from the inside out, you start out that race at a lower, lower uh, uh, heart rate and a lower core temperature, you can then go faster for longer. So they actually had him on there. It was attached to the bike. And he's like firing away on the bike. Uh, so his muscles are getting warm or or loose and his core temperature is maintaining normothermia. So that's uh, kind of the kind of a, the corollary to what you're saying is if you're been in the gym, or whatever, all of a sudden you get this unexpected call, if you can you know, uh, use this, address it, you're going to be better going in that fire. And, you know, again, uh, it's one thing you guys are doing, uh, you know, heroic work. So if you're in better shape, you're going to save lives, your lives, their lives, property, um, you know. And so uh, any way we can help to, to that mission, you know, uh, we're excited to try to help it out. Well, I want to hit on one more area, you know, before we – got one more complete tangent that I want to make sure that we have on mic before we leave. But um, if you wouldn't mind, Joe, just kind of educating us on – the physiological and psychological impact of even just a slight raise in body temperature, because as you kind of talked about before, cognition and some of these other areas, you know, 102, some people might think, well, that's a fever, but it's not, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. But from performance side, I mean, I literally, there were fires where I swear to God, it felt like my kidneys were cooking. I was just dying in in, in the bunker gear in that particular event. So the importance of, uh, you know, two three degrees talk to me about that kind of escalation or or decline of function as we increase body temperature so some people will tell you that you know exposure to temperatures of 104 to 107 we start turning on pain receptors so you know 102 and a half is not much below that threshold so you know a lot of the temperature um control points we have are to keep us from being stupid you know it's too hot in here you have to stop because if you keep going and you have heat stroke and you go to heat exhaustion, you, you you know you vasoconstrict at the end of that and you can't dump heat at all, and the end result is seizures and death. 
And so, you know, the whole thing is that while they sound like just small changes in core body temperature, um, all your enzyme systems, all the muscles are set up to work in a very narrow little temperature range. And um, above 102 and a half, um, they're starting to say, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, contractility gets la- gets worse. Every, you know, re- the ability to re- remove waste products from the area gets worse. Mitochondrial function gets worse. And, you know, mitochondria, those little things that make the ATP in the muscle, you know, most people don't realize that they're the major source of heat. Um, when they're actively working and cranking out ATP in full metabolic rate, they're working at about 60 degrees C, um, which is way, way hotter than anybody would have ever guessed. Um, but that's what the literature supports. So you can imagine in a very local regional basis how hot things can get. And just a little bit of temperature reduction makes a big difference in efficiency for performance for those to carry out that particular biochemical process of making energy. So it's all about kind of staying in this little homeothermic layer where, you know, we're where we're supposed to be with temperature because really we've evolved to, to be in that, in that temperature range to get the most out of our body. Um, animals, you know, if you watch animals on hot in the heat, they do what they're supposed to do. They lay down and they sleep in the shade. Um, you know, firefighters, athletes, they don't get that privilege. They're expected to perform, you know, through that. And so we're continuously asking them to take you know, key enzyme systems, metabolic processes, you know, and, and get them to work optimally at a temperature range that they can't do it. And so, you know, you're talking about failure. Um, and your body does have fail-safe systems that says, okay, stupid, you're stopping. Whether you want to or not, I'm going to just turn you off, which is why you start to get weak, which is why you can't continue, which is why your respiration and heart rate are changing. And then, you know, when you cool back down, lo and behold, they're back where they're supposed to be in the right range, and you can continue. I just had a thought as well. You talked about the faceless area of the head being where you can either offload or absorb heat. We're wearing thick gloves, which I think that's something we need to go to NASA and find some gloves, some materials that we can actually hold stuff with because of the fact that we wear pillows on our hands in 2022 blows my mind, but that's another entire <laughs> podcast. Right. But also, you get so much heat through the mask that you literally get sunburn. I think there's that, you know, that UV exposure as well. Um, and, uh, so it just kind of occurs to me that, that, that one portal, aside from the soles of the feet and the hands, you're is, it, there is too. your direct exposure to the radiant heat from the fire and, as well. And you're picking up heat just like you would be losing it if you were cooling that surface. So, you know, it's kind of paradoxical. It's, it's happening and it's not exactly what you want to have going on. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, there are a couple masks available. Um, they don't work quite as efficiently, but we, ha- we haven't gone to that because we, you know, we're using them real time, you know, with a cooling system and a pump and extra weight. Uh, you know, hasn't been practical. And we don't want to do anything that would obscure vision or ability to communicate during those periods. Yeah, there's some engineering challenges to that part. And the other thing um, that I've learned is uh, that has the same, you know, basically your forehead is the, the upper part. So even if I were bald, uh, that would not help me over that. So upper portion of the face um, and does have the ABAs, but um, it does kind of prioritize that blood flow to the brain. And this little bit, you know, not quite as, as fast to impact the, the core temperature. And as Joe said, there are engineering challenges to get it, uh, get it attached to the face for a lot of reasons, like NASCAR drivers would like it as well, but we, you know, we're hoping to get there eventually, but this is a bit of an engineering challenge. Um, but in terms of, uh, the technology and the use cases for the firefighters, um, you know, the rehab environment is, you know, a very straightforward one, we think. 
Um, and, you know, it's easy to have on site as long as it's there, easy to use. You know, if you're going to be, as you said, uh, recovering anyway, just slide your hand in it. The, uh, people always ask, like, how long should I do it? Any amount of time, as I you know, gave you those stats of how quickly people recover, any amount of time you can do it is going to be beneficial. You know, five minutes, 10 minutes at most will, you know, will get you back to normal thermia. Um, so the rehab environment is, is certainly a time to use it. Uh, I know, you know, that you guys in the firehouse or, or not are training to be, you know, uh, most fit to, uh, to do your job. Um, so it can certainly be used like we're using it with our athletes, you know, our special forces. It's, it's there in the, the weight room or wherever your gym is. You're going to be resting in between sets. You know, if it's there, they can use it. It's going to have, have that, that benefit. But, um, you know, one thing, a uh, couple of things I want to touch on, which again, I mentioned that we're a science-based company. So, you know, we are more reluctant than many to, uh, to, uh, talk about things we don't have actual studies on. But, um, the, uh, there's an acute benefit to your recovery and your heart rate, and there is a, a chronic benefit to your heart basically, you know, not working as hard over a period of time. And, you know, we're aware that, you know, the number one killer of firefighters and who die, you know, way too young compared to the rest of society uh, is cardiac arrest. Um, and so, you know, the science would suggest, and I'll, I'll call Joe in for this, <laughs> for it, but, um, uh, you know, basically, and logic would suggest if over a period of a career, day, week, career, where my body's working less hard, my heart is working less hard to recover, that's going to have a chronic benefit to me over a period of time. Um, you want to touch on that a little bit, John? Yeah, I think, you know, Craig Heller and I have talked about this, is that, you know, of all the muscles we've got in our body, the one that never stops is our heart. And, you know, so periods of thermal stress is power, is, has to be hard on it, uh, you know, and it is, um, it, it doesn't get the privilege of resting. And so, you know, um, thermal stress probably is cumulative to it. I'm not, and this is all speculative. This is me having no real evidence except common sense that says, you know, you put a, a muscle, make a muscle contract at temperatures it doesn't want to be at, it's going to cause damage over time. And, you know, I think the, some of the, some of the, um, you know, actuarial science supports the fact that firefighters have, you know, will have problems with cardiac function. And so it's, you know, can we also reduce that long term? Is this, is this just a way of extending lifespan, you know, keeping kids and wives happier because they know that their husband's going to come home or their wife is going to come home from the fire firehouse? So it's just a matter of, you know, kind of taking a look at the body at a holistic basis and looking at what temperature control does for it. And so since we're on the subject of, of uh, shameless scientific speculation, uh, another uh, way that we think <laughs> it can help, and uh, for what's worth, Joe's uh, scientific and Dr. Heller's scientific speculation has a bit more credibility than mine. But um, uh, there is reason to believe that this can help with sleep, depending upon people's situation, right? So uh, I think it's pretty accepted science to uh, if you're have a heat load you need to dump and you're overheated, you're going to have more difficulty getting to sleep. Um, and you guys know that, right? Oh yeah. Trust me. I talk about sleep science on this show all the time. And so, so 65 is the ideal kind of room temperature, for right. example. So, but if, if, uh, uh, let's say I'm not a great example because one, I sleep very well and plus I'm lazy all day. So I never get my, my heat load up. But, uh, if, you know, you're coming back from, uh, the fire or a workout or anybody's coming back from a workout and it's going to take you a, a reasonable amount of time to get your heart rate down and your core temperature down to your normal thermia. This can 
accelerate that clearly. You know, we can get somebody down again, depend upon people and situations down, you know, within five, 10 minutes, uh, down towards their core temperature. So, uh, again, shameless scientific speculation, but, um, if you can go to sleep addressing that before you go to sleep, we have, you know, uh, we have some folks doing some studies on this actually, like I shouldn't say studies, tests and like baseball, uh, trainers have been doing it this, this year. Um, but if you can kind of address that as well as you can, you should be getting into sleep quicker and into quality sleep uh, quicker. How'd I do on my shameless You're, scientific speculation? It was good, fairly <laughs> shameless, but but also fairly accurate. So, you know, there, there's a lot of areas that this probably has meaning. Um, you know, we've just touched on, you know, on the surface of it. If, you know, we, um, term, core body temperature has not been a well-studied area in science. Everybody just assumes it's always been, you know, 98.6, only to find out in the last couple of years they've lowered it down, you know, below 90 into the 97 range. Um, but, you know, so things happen. And, you know, we just need to, you know, we know this has benefit. Um, the science supports the benefit and the science supports improved physiology and improved performance. And, you know, beyond that, you know, to me, it becomes a no-brainer. Well, I have asked numerous people about um – you know, how do you build up tolerance to heat? And the answer is usually you don't, you know, I mean, we, a lot of us do these workouts in gear and I think we, we just build tolerance to suffering, but I don't think you're physiologically really adapting. So to me, this is an amazing opportunity for us to look at it a completely different way as, as you know, going back to DARPA, um, where instead of trying to work out and now we're finding out that our gear has, um, PFAS in it. And so, you know, now you're, you're, you know, vasodilate, excuse me, yeah, vasodilated, now you're absorbing even more things that are in your gear. You know, rather than just murder yourself in your gear, you can change the perspective completely, do a lot more workouts in regular workout gear. And then when you put your gear on and you do some of these evolutions, you can bring your body temperature down so you're not sweating as profusely and you are able to to regulate that heart rate. And I'm completely on board as well. It doesn't even have to be a fire. We come back from a cardiac arrest and you're adrenaline's been up and you've been doing compressions and you know moving the patient from from stretcher to bed and then you get back and you know some of these firehouses around the corner from the hospital and now you're you know you're just going to go straight to sleep so i think it's a great opportunity and especially if it's in florida i mean nighttime is what you know mid 80s and god knows what what humidity so i think i can totally see that application i think that application would contribute to chronic good health as much, if not more, than than the training element. Yeah, it could be. And um, uh, again, we don't have data on that. We just have like science um, at our at our as a tailwind uh, on it. And we always say like this is not a magic device. It's not going to solve every problem. But uh, when your problem is uh, having too much heat, it's going to uh, address that. Uh, and so you know, we see it <clears throat> for this firefighting community as being you know a pretty key uh, part of any safety and wellness program for departments, you know, cities, whatever. Um, and so, you know, we're, uh, you know, this is part of our effort to get the word out there because we sincerely, you know, do want to to help out everybody, but certainly help out this community because, you know, again, we, we circling back to 9-11, I mean, for the love of God, uh, if uh, we as a nation or we as people or we as businessmen don't want to support those people, you know, there's something wrong with us. So, um, you know, uh, appreciate, you know, you uh, giving us a forum to kind of talk about it. 
Well, I want to make sure that we everyone knows where to find it first, but then I've got one more thing I want to want to ask you before I let you go. So, okay. for people listening, yep. where are the best places online to learn more about Coolmit, to reach out, and and to order? Oh, uh, thanks. So, um, our website, uh, coolmit.com, uh, has a lot of information. Um, we do have a separate page for uh, firefighters. You know, we don't mean to exclude other first responders. The firefighters, are, you know, probably. Uh, more obvious use case, but you know, there's other use cases for certainly for other first responders and for what it's worth, you know, outdoor workers. We had, we're talking to some companies about for their safety programs, uh, providing this, you know, for uh, oil uh, field workers and um, and other people, construction workers working out in, in the heat. So coolmint.com, if you do slash fire, that'll take you to that uh, study that we have. Um, and we're uh, getting more and more data analyzed on that. We'll get more results up on that, but it is really, you know, Compelling stuff. I think it tells a pretty clear story as to what this can do to to the body in that environment. Um, and on social media, we're uh, we're sitting as we uh, started in the beginning with our our marketing agency. They're they're uh, shepherding us into the social media world. Um, and so uh, we're cool, cool met on Facebook, uh, and we're real cool met on Twitter and Instagram. There is a a squatter on the cool met uh, handle for. Uh, uh, for, uh, on Instagram. So, uh, we're starting to put out some really good stuff on that educational, uh, primarily is our, our point for that. Um, and so, um, the, uh, we should get a lot more content, uh, going up on that. So we're, uh, we're excited to get the word out. And in terms of buying it, um, so the, uh, the website is currently open. We've been supply constrained, uh, for a long time. We've, um, in last year we had some really good, uh, helpful, podcast exposure for more of the performance side. Um, so we consequently have a wait list of like 11,000 people, but we just recently were able to uh, give some uh, uh, inventory, shouldn't say give, sell some inventory out to the uh, to the consumer base. So it is currently open. We expect it to sell out soon, but um, for the commercial market, particularly the firefighting market, um, you can reach out to me uh, directly. We do have you know inventory set aside for this. So, uh, Craig at coolmet.com, uh, is the best way to reach me. And I, uh, am enthusiastic about speaking to anybody that I can about getting this word out. Beautiful. Well, one more thing before I let you go, Joe, before we start recording, there was a discussion on what being a veterinary surgeon and working with NASA on what kind <laughs> of, uh, species that have, that have seen space. So I'd love to just kind of hear the smorgasbord of, uh, the animal kingdom that has experienced something that most humans never will. Um, right now, almost everything that flies is, is a mouse. Um, they're small. They're genetically identical. They're easy to control. We've got good supplies and, um, and they meet the requirements of most of the investigators. We have in the last couple of years flown uh, African uh, xenopus, uh, clawless frogs, um, and we have flown some squid larvae. Um, everybody says, well, squid is in that kind of weird. Um, they're about the size of a flea. I mean, you can barely see the, 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 larvae, the larval form they flew, but they, they're able to do very nice genetics on them. And... Uh, but it really is mice. We've flown rats. We've flown a variety of different fish. fish. We've flown tadpoles every once in a while. Um, we have not. Fl- nobody has flown a non-human primate since the mid '90s, and right now, I doubt NASA ever will again. So you know, there's. Um, I think there's been like 32 non-human primates that have flown in the history of the space program, but people always assume that thousands of monkeys have flown, and it, it just didn't happen that way. 
Um, so, but we're heavily reliant on rodents and, um, probably will stay there. They, they answer the, the questions that are being asked and, um, we can deal with them. Um, the crews are very well trained and handle them very well and can execute stuff on, on orbit without a whole lot of difficulty. So is it possible that some of the people in the South found a spacecraft with a squid thinking it was an alien and then went on the Joe Rogan <laughs> you know, podcast? They're so small. Um, the squid flew in a container that contained maybe 25 mil of fluid, and there were 64 of them in there. That's how small they are. So this is like, you know, if if you saw one, you would have to actually really work to focus to see that it was a squid. Um, the adults are maybe three inches long. And, uh, but the, 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 the paralarvae are, I'm sorry, they're about the size of a flea. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, we can get, they got, we get good science out of it. And, you know, researchers, we really talk to researchers about using the lowest, you know, vertebrate or invertebrate species possible, really work to minimize pain and distress to those animals and really try to deal with their welfare while still trying to optimize the science return. So just one more thing. I remember talking to my dad years ago when I was little. Um, I used to go on his rounds with him and, you know, I was very immersed in the, the veterinary medicine side. Um, but I remember him telling me about using animals in science. And he's like, you know, I, he disagreed with using animals for, you know, makeup tests and those kind of things. He said, but you've got to understand that some of the medicine we use through these experiments saves animals. So then you kind of like, okay, well, it's not a black and white issue. But you touched on the ability to kind of deviate from animal testing as we progress through some of this tissue science. So what is your hope coming from the veterinary background as far as reducing the amount of animals that are used in science full stop? Oh, that's a hard question. I think it's going to go down. Um, the molecular techniques are getting better all the time, um, both at the metabolomic level, um, the microbiome level, uh, and but you know, no matter what you do to ask a question about whole animal physiology, you need a whole animal, and so they're still probably always going to be used. I think the most important thing to remember is the responsibility we have for using them, to make sure that the science justifies the use of the animal and that animal's life. And so you know, I think if you're you're thinking about you know how do I maintain minimize pain and distress for this animal through its entire research experience, and then. Is, this, is there a societal benefit and justification for even using an animal for, in the first place? And I think as long as you're asking those two questions, we're going to stay on the right path with trying to use animals in science. Um, they're not, they're going to be used. There's just certain things we can't do to people, won't do to people. You know, the Nuremberg Code kind of spelled out, you can't do certain things to people. And um, it's probably best we did. Uh, spell those things out. You know, we can't cause permanent physical, physiological, or psychological harm to a human. And so, you know, animals can help answer some of those questions that result in you know, better psychotherapeutic drugs, you know, better physiological drugs, better ability to do transplants, um, you know, um, better understanding of, of disease mechanisms. And um, a lot of the preliminary work comes out of animals and it gets transferred to humans down the road. So, um, you know, they, they give their lives so that we can have a healthier one. Beautiful. I mean, you have such a unique perspective, so thank you. Well, I just want to thank you both. It's been an amazing conversation. We've gone all, all over the place, which is my favorite type of chat. But <laughs> obviously, great. we spent a lot of time on Coolmit as well. I'm very excited about this. I think, you know, there's, it's not a, a gizmo or a gadget or a hack. This is a, a needed technology that will improve performance and longevity in the responder, in my opinion. 
So I want to thank you both for being so generous and, and sharing your life's work. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Cool Mitt hopefully be embraced by the fire service. Uh, really appreciate it. Wonderful time talking. Thanks much, James. Thank you.